Welcome to Deep Impact Investing with Kimberly Griego-Kyle from Horizon Sustainable Financial Services. In this podcast, we talk about sustainable investing and how your portfolio reflects your values. Do your investments seek accountability from corporations that govern more and more of our society and even the lives we lead? Listen in as we explore the question, are you investing like you give a damn? Hello and welcome to Deep Impact Investing with Kimberly Griego-Kyle from Horizons Sustainable Financial Services. Kim, how are you? I'm doing great. It's really hot here in Santa Fe. How about where you are? Okay. What do you mean by hot? <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> okay. Well, in Santa Fe, hot is in the high 80s. Oh, I'm out of here. Forget that. <laughs> yeah. We've had a week of 96 and it's Omaha. Okay. It's Omaha. Yeah. This is not, and you, yeah, it's not normal. You probably have humidity, and we have almost none. A bit of humidity and just unpleasantness. So yeah, it's uh, it's yeah. fun outside uh, right now. Yeah. But uh, yeah. we're not here to talk about the weather. We're here to talk no. about something much more important. And you brought guests today again. I'm so super excited about this. Can you do the intro for me? I will. I will. I think this is like four podcasts in a row with guests, but it's been a lot of fun. I love yeah. having guests on. So my first guest is Renee Morgan, who is currently an advisor with Robiscotti and Philipson out of San Francisco area. And she has, let's see, uh, she's been an advisor for about 20 years now. Mm. I've known her almost that entire time. She does a ton of work in the racial justice area and a lot of work locally with the Surge organization out of Denver, which I would say for Renee is... A, really a support system for for that organization for the black lives matter folks and she is very powerful in that position she's a strong advocate and speaker on divesting from private prisons and i i think i've personally known renee as a friend and colleague for minimum of 15 years if not a little longer so welcome renee well it's great to be here thanks my second guest is aaron garza who is the deputy director of the Equal Opportunity Office at Weber State University. He previously served with a nonprofit in Ogden, the Community Action Partnership, which helped underserved communities, and still does, I shouldn't say helped, but uh, helped underserved communities to become more self-sufficient, and I'm sure has a ton of other things under his belt that he's done, but uh, welcome, Aaron. Thank you very much, Kim. So these are my two guests. We have a very heavy topic today, but I think it's really important. It's really timely and something we need to keep an open dialogue about. And it's interesting. We didn't plan this, but we're having this discussion on race and protests and what I want to call a statement of solidarity that we at Horizon Sustainable Financial Services put out on our blog post on our webpage earlier this week. On Juneteenth, it's June 19, and uh, again, we didn't plan this. It just happened to be the day we could get everybody together, but it's Juneteenth, and that's very important for those who may not know what Juneteenth is. It's the day that black people commemorate the emancipation of enslavement, and it's a somber day, really. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's 
it's an, it's an important day and something that uh, should be taken seriously. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to hear what they have to say and um, where do we start this entire conversation? I mean, it, like you said, it's going to be very intense. It is. And, um, uh, but again, it's important to, to have these conversations mm-hmm. and, and um, talk about them. So if we just jump right in, I think really the first place we should tackle is the topic of internalized racism and the, the denial of, of the broad problem that we see in systemic racism in this country. So when we say that, what, is it, what does it mean when we say internalized racism? And, and what is systemic about it? Who wants to jump in on that first? Uh, I can I, yeah, I can start and then Great. you know Aaron I can shift it to you anytime. Um, sure, yeah, go ahead and start. Yeah, well, I guess I mean for me, I feel like those are really two different things. That yeah, um, I, first of all, I'll acknowledge like I'm a white person, and so I have internal racism both um, culturally how I was raised and then also system systemically I'm raised within a racist system within racist systems. And so for me, the internal work is, is a process of relearning. Like it's relearning everything I've been taught. It's changing behavior. It's acknowledging my internal feelings, like what's happening in my body. Like what is the defensiveness? Like when people talk about race, I think white folks, in particular, get a little um, defensive. Like, you know, well, I am not a racist. You know, I think our, our knee-jerk reaction is to separate ourselves from that word and to separate ourselves from words like white supremacy or racism or slavery, any word that invokes or um, references our history and our legacy, there's a defensiveness to that. And so for me, and I think for many people, like recognizing the internal part, there's a physical, there's, you know, it's happening psychologically and emotionally and physically. And so acknowledging where it's happening in my body and noticing that like I'm tensing up and to just breathe through that. Because if I'm acting from that place of tension, it's usually going to be aggressive and kind of um, stop a conversation that needs to happen. So there's an internal process that happens that's, that's, um, that I think is worthwhile and really important actually for white people to recognize. But then there's also just the cultural and systemic stuff we've been taught. So a lot of the stories we've been taught, our cultural narrative is wrong. Um, And so it's also knowing that like, we're just full, that I'm full of bias. Like I have a lot of bias that I've been taught. I mean, even speaking of Juneteenth, you know, we white folks, I think, generally celebrate the 4th of July as that some kind of Independence Day. But for black folks, you know, in 1865, somewhere and the reason we have to say Juneteenth is a lot of slave owners didn't even tell people that they were emancipated. So even though we say June 19th, which was the day, it's kind of the teenth by the time folks even knew that they were free. And so their story is really different. And so if we change that narrative and change the story of America, um, we all get to change. And that's like a systemic issue. So systemic, you know, and this is a financial show. So like talking about finance, there's so many areas of access that people don't have access to based on race and poverty and class. 
Um, and the, and so I guess they're, they're just two different things. One is systemic and structural, and then one is kind of our internal experience is how I think about it. Yeah, very, very poignant. Yeah, and I really liked, Renee, how you talked about the internalized part of it from the individual standpoint, and then that there is actually kind of a, a wider social internalization of, of racism and kind of the putting that in terms of, of society, how I look at that kind of socialized uh, part of internalized racism as being, here's what is expected, what is normal, what do people look out at society and say, oh, this is the normal way of things being, that's the internal the internalized racism that we might be facing. Uh, uh, one particular type of way of describing that is they, they have this kind of social cognition test in psychology um, looking at racism, for example, where they say, um, could you picture a doctor? Could you picture an astronaut? Uh, can you picture a, a president? And what is what do you see? And so when you get the results back from a whole lot of people and you see that that is kind of, they have a very particular picture of what they think those kind of higher ranking kind of or higher uh, professional level people are. And it does tend to be uh, someone who is white and in a lot of cases, someone who is white and male. That's how kind of systemically um, we have this internalized picture of, of how things should be. And so that's that's a big concern um, as we're looking at it as racism being systematized is how much have we internalized what uh, we expect, and that expectation isn't just for um, who we expect to be a doctor, for example, but is like who do we expect to be poor, and why, and why is that, and kind of and saying that it's not just um, the way that it has to be, and so I think challenging that is another part of of looking at how things have been systematized. It's it's interesting. One of the things you said, Renee, is when we think about our internalized racism, and I am also white, uh, and and how we might feel that in our body. It, when when we bring up this topic that we're talking about today, I'm very nervous in mm-hmm. in just talking about this, and so. I, I do feel that in my body, and, and I worry how people might take this conversation coming from us. But I think it's, it's, it's incredibly important that we all have this conversation and talk about it from different perspectives and be open to it. And, and I hope that we will get some feedback on it. Uh, just, just the entire conversation. And, and if people have uh, comments or questions or you know want to give us feedback on the entire conversation I hope that they will send it our way and when we talk about the financial piece of uh, of systemic race racism it's it's stunning to me that this is still an issue but I, I remember a recent story about a, a, a black man who literally went into a bank to deposit a check that he had received. It was a large sum of money, and he had received it from a settlement, a lawsuit that he had filed on discrimination. And the bank uh, wouldn't, was very concerned about cashing it. He wasn't even cashing it, he was depositing it into the bank that he had been a member of for years and years. And they called the police because they thought the 
check was fraudulent. And he had been a member of that bank for years. Mm-hmm. And they called the police on him. I'm quite sure that would not have happened if he had been a white man with a large sum of check, sum of money in a check. And it's not like it was a million dollar check. It was 50 some thousand dollars that he had received because he had been discriminated against. And here he was being discriminated against because he was black depositing a check. And, you know, this, these kinds of things happen over and over again. And that's systemic racism that we see over and over again. So it's, it's just a continual problem, and it's something that we have to continue to address over and over and over. And, and when we see it, we have to call it out. It's, it's important. I, I want to say something about finance in particular, because I think something like that's, you know, that, whether it's that example or any new number of examples, exa- you know, exactly what Aaron said, like who do we envision when we talk about wealth or if we talk Mm -hmm. about poverty and if we're talking about the bank and um you know finance finance is the the distribution of it's the distribution of wealth right like the financial industry is the mechanism for distribution and our legacy is the slave trade i mean wall street was the site of the new york slave trade and so we had you know, this land, the land that we're on was stolen from indigenous, you know, 1. billion acres were stolen from indigenous folks. And we had 250 years of free labor from um, the transatlantic slave trade. And so when we talk about wealth in America today, the legacy of wealth is a direct descendant of genocide and slavery. And, and those that doesn't get fixed overnight. It's not like slavery ended and then all of a sudden there was equality. We just reinvented slavery through different systems, through Jim Crow, through boarding schools for indigenous folks, through the new Jim Crow and mass incarceration. And so finance, this distribution method is still in place. We just have created different barriers, different racial barriers, but it's this, it all comes from the same place. So just like the legacy of poverty and disparity in wealth and income are descendants from slavery and genocide, our distribution, our distribution center, which is the financial industry, is still a descendant from the slave trade. And so we have some systemic barriers um, that are right. 400 years in the making. Right. So there we see that wealth imbalance and we know in the social investment arena we're trying to work in that system with community investments and things like that to correct that wealth imbalance but how do we address that is there a better way is there a more impactful way in your opinion um yeah is that to me aaron do you want to say something because i feel like i just talked a lot sorry (laughs) well (laughs) Well, I think especially since you're talking about from the financial ang- angle, I think it'd be good for you to address that because that's uh, okay. that's what you're working on. Yeah, sh- sure. Um, I mean, yeah, I have some thoughts, know, but I'd like to know what you think. So, yeah, I, I my general opinion is we have so far to go, right? Like, so I mean, I can talk about like at Robichaudian and Philipson, we have strict. We have a huge. We have a divestment criteria based on racial barriers. Like, we believe that there. are are 
systems in place and industries in place that simply you should not invest in, like for-profit colleges, for private, mm-hmm. you know, private prisons. There are things that are dehumanizing based on, well, they're just dehumanizing, period. But there's mm-hmm. a racial component that is our racial justice screen. So for us, we draw the line at divestment and we don't put any money in certain industries. That's one way. There's certainly mm-hmm. other way. You know, some people I've done a lot of interviews in the past two weeks, and I think our industry wants to really focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And while, of course, that's great. I mean, of course, having more people of color in positions of management and investment firms, invest, you know, money managers, boards, CEOs, the whole thing is good. Um, I also don't think it's talking about the systemic issues, that the structure itself has barriers and is systemically racist. And so just by adding people into the system does not uh, does not fix the system itself. And so when we say, what are the answers, I can, <laughs> I feel really confident saying, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> because right. we've had a, you know, that is the challenge with systems, is that all of us live and operate in a system that's been in place, and it's all we know. But right. what I can say is that the people that are most marginalized by it, that the people that don't have access, we, we call it the most impacted communities, but the right. communities most impacted by these negatively by these systems are the people that do have answers because they can right. point to them. Those of us that benefit from it, it's hard to see the problem when you're benefiting from it. That's very true, yeah. I, I wanna add to that, that when when we look outside of that system and we say, we want to do this, we're not always doing the right thing. So Correct, we, yeah. you're right, we have to look at what those who who need something or are asking for something, what are they asking and how can we support that? So when we look at community investing, for example, uh, we, we want to work within their desired programs and, and systems. And one of the things that I appreciate is uh, organizations like C-Note who are um, working with women and minorities and trying to support small businesses and um, you know, and, and during the pandemic, they specifically are supporting um, Black-owned businesses and um, minority-owned businesses to try to keep them open and with small business loans. So those are those things are important to to yeah. continue funding. And yeah, you know. I do think I think CDFIs um, is which is community development about. financial yeah. institutions, <laughs> yeah. right? Sorry for, for people Commun- who don't know. No, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Community notes or CDFIs. And I also think CDFIs and also philanthropy, I think I I have, yes, like I think those are the closest we have in some ways because it distributes, it distributes money, it distributes wealth to the communities most impacted. I still think, and this is my own, my own opinion, although I would say that Roe was shooting Phillips would agree, um, (laughs) that, um, that structurally, there's still a couple problems. Like one with CDFIs is we're still talking about debt. That like yes. when you give people when when they're loaning out that money, there's still an interest rate attached to it. Yes, it's a lower interest rate, and it's people that often can't access loans otherwise. But I think we would really we really need to be and want I really want us to be rethinking about like that structure. 
Like, why is it still debt? Like, why? It, there has to be a distribution method that isn't debt. But then we can look at philanthropy. What we have in place now is philanthropy, which is which is free. I mean, it's not free, but it's oh, it's money. It's that a they far get. better option. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But the, even within and then within philanthropy, though, the, they only give away five percent of what they have because mm-hmm. they have this in perpetuity so that right. their wealth never runs out. And I think we need to really be questioning some of those like built in assumptions and built in structures. Um, but I do think, yes, I think getting wealth to or getting money to communities that often don't have access to it. And then also some structure where we can hear their voices and have them lead us out of these systems are kind of the things that I think about. Yeah, I'm going to change direction just a little bit. And Aaron, I want to speak directly to you. And, you know, because I think wealth and education are, are often somewhat tied. But I think we also need to make education more equitable uh, for uh, for all folks, but specifically for minorities. And, and we've seen that in the last year, specifically where some people can simply buy their way into what they think is a good education, yes. <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and we know that schools from Head Start all the way on up are, are very much underfunded. And especially those from from low-income neighborhoods or impacted neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting a college education for those who aspire to it is often out of reach for for those impacted neighborhoods and, and minorities. Um, how do we address this? What I think is probably a systemic problem as well. How do we address that? Oh, it's absolutely a systemic problem. Um, and it, you know, partially it was kind of created on, on purpose, one, one could look at it, because of how, uh, especially for public education, how it's funding, it's, it, how it's funded, it's based on local taxes and local structures. And, you know, historically, um, there was uh, you know, what, what was called white flight, as uh, white families moved from urban areas into the suburbs and took their money with them and created new school districts. And meanwhile, the the metro school districts kind of suffered from that, and who was left in those districts would be uh, communities of color. So, I mean, this was kind of by design when it originally happened, is that people um, didn't want their kids to associate with with the newer minority kids. You know, that kind of, there goes the neighborhood, uh, um, kind of a quote. Um, and so, yeah, a- as we look at that, uh, we can see that that is where a lot of the funding inequities um, come from, from that uh, thing that happened in, you know, in the 20th century and kind of still continues to happen now that we do have in public education, you know, vast disparate uh, levels. Um, and you can say that there's even, um, I mean, that's just one part of the, the disparity. I mean, we have, you know, different levels that we uh, fund schools by state. You know, I, I, I'm originally from Texas, but now I live in Utah, which actually has the lowest per student expenditure um, of all the states. It actually uh, even, you know, you know, it's actually the 51st if you count the District of Columbia. It actually get, has the, the, the lowest uh, per student expenditure in, in the country. And so, you know, looking at it that way, you can say, okay, well, not only is it within a state itself, but just amongst the various states, we have this kind of, um, kind of, well, um, you don't know what you're going to get uh, because the there isn't a centralized um, 
educational system that says this is how much funding every student should get. But taking it back just to kind of that state level, that's something that can be controlled. That's something that the voters can say, this is what we expect as far as the level of, of um, funding across the districts. And so there have been various states that have looked at that. Texas actually did that. And it did help um, to, to combat the inequity where they, they called it the Robin Hood um, school funding. And there was actually uh, a lot of, a lot of um, fighting against that, you know, kind of by entrenched interests saying that this isn't fair because this is taking away tax-based money from one area into another, but it really is looking at it as a whole. And I think that's, uh, if I had to put it down to a key statement, uh, I would say it's because we largely have a problem in this country of looking at um, different groups of kids as different and not saying these are all our kids and they all need the same type of, uh, of education. And so kind of that that separation of, well, my kids are good and good for them and kind of not um, thinking that other children should have the same types of uh, opportunity. That's, that's, the, that's, a, that's at the heart of the problem. Yeah, I think education in this country needs a huge overhaul, number one. And, you know, even when we, you know, the lower education, K to 12 is, you know, is definitely needs an overhaul. And then how we look at university education, upper education, for those who want that is a whole different level of problems. It's so right. outrageously expensive at this point in time that I don't, I don't know how anyone can think about really getting a higher education anymore without going into debt, deep debt. Right. And there's actually some, some, some interesting obstacles within communities of color that, that aren't as prevalent uh, in the white community, for example, that a lot of um, students of color will get into the university and stop out. And one of the highest, uh, one of the most common causes of stopping out is actually family responsibility, mm. that um, there might be um, a very low level of wealth in that family, and all it takes is one sickness of a parent to create um, just kind of a, a hole in income that might need to be filled by that former college student going to work and helping to support the family. That happens quite often. Yeah. I know we're getting low on time, but I want to address one last, I think, really important issue that we have going on. There's clearly a lot of protesting happening <laughs> around yeah. the country. And it, it's, it's important, you know, uh, people of color are angry, black people are angry, and, and rightly so. I, I think we're really at, at the tipping point that we needed to be at. Um, you know, racial justice issues have been going on for, for decades and I mean, hundreds of years, really. Um, but where, you know, I mean, we have so many um, uh, issues in this country with, with immigrants, with people of color, and people are dying, and they're being killed. They're not just dying, they're being killed, and um, it's, it's boiling over. I wonder what your thoughts are on the correct way for us to support 
those who are out in the streets and, um, and, and what, what we should be doing. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'll start off just really quick that I think one of the important things to do is to say people are protesting. Yes. And um, to say that if we look at it that way, then we're looking at it in, in an inclusive way to say it's not that, you know, people of color are, are protesting. It's it's Americans are protesting. You know, these people are protesting. And so we should kind of open our eyes to see what the, what the concern is. So that's that's where I would start. Number one. And that gives it the, the level of of kind of psychological um import that it should have is it's not just that this group of people is doing it and then that way unfortunately maybe our own internalized racism might discount the importance of it if we look at it and say people are protesting and i'm going to find out why and i'm going to analyze you know what can be done what needs to be done what is uh, being protested against great i know you have an opinion renee yeah, I mean, I think I would I would say something really similar that it's not, um, it's not. Um, a, I think that the way you phrase it was sort of like um, we have an issue with black folks, an issue with immigrant or immigrant issues, and like I think actually we just we also have like a whiteness issue. We just ha- we have mm. an issue of systemic racism. It's not. Um, it, that's based on economics. So, um, so what can we do? I mean, I think there's a lot of things we can do, but fundamentally <laughs> in like a one sentence, two sentence thing is, um, support people of color and, and support the most marginalized groups because I, I can't, I really believe that if we center the people that are most negatively impacted by these systems. And so that might be, um, you know, a single mom on the border that might be um, a queer black person that's homeless on the streets of New York. It may, whoever is most impacted by these systems, when we center their story, when we find out their story, and we make this a human experience for them, so that I think that's when America succeeds that the American story is not the white story. The American story is not the colonizer's colonizer story. The American story is the stories we haven't heard yet, the celebrations that we ha- don't even know about. I mean, white America's just learning about Juneteenth. Do you know what I mean? Like there are yes. stories and there are experiences that we need to center in our own systems because if we can make our systems accessible and more humane, then that's where America starts to succeed. And so for me, the protests are just saying, hey, pay attention to us. Like, listen to what's happening because we've been left out of the conversation for 400 years. And so, and we all play a part in that. Like all people are playing a part a part in a role in keeping that oppression there. So, so to me, it's just about, it's, it's a, not even just, it is about that, that like, whichever way we can support, lift up, center those experiences, stories, and solutions, that's how we win. That was amazingly powerful, Renee. Thank you. I wish we had more time to talk about so many more issues around this. Uh, I just want to mention 
that we at Horizons Sustainable Financial Services recently signed on to a statement with racial justice investing to, it was an investor statement of solidarity to address systemic racism and a call to action. Uh, and, and briefly, they have um, five calls to action, uh, which is to commit to actively engage with and amplify and include black voices in investor spaces. Um, it, there's a commitment to, end, uh, to embed racial equality and a justice lens into our own organizations, a commitment to integrate racial justice into investment decision-making and engagement strategies, to reinvest in communities, and to use investor voices to advance anti-racist public policy. Uh, so we did uh, sign on to that. We also have a uh, solidarity uh, statement on our website, so I encourage folks to take a look at that. It's horizonssfs.com. And I want to thank both of my guests for being on today. Thank you, Erin. Thank you, Renee. Uh, I think this is an important conversation. I hope it sparks listeners to have these conversations in their own lives. And uh, again, thank you very much. Thank you, Kim. Thanks, Kim. And for those of you who are interested in contacting us here at Horizons, you can reach us by phone, 505-982-9661. And if you have questions or comments about this podcast or any podcast, please email us at info at horizonssfs.com. Thanks for listening. Kim, this was fantastic. I really appreciate you bringing them on the show. I learned a lot. And obviously, there's a lot to talk about. Um, my daughter actually has started a lot of these conversations because my wife is Hispanic. I am very white. And uh, so that, that marriage has been interesting throughout the years. And my daughter hey. is very active. So That's funny. My wife is half Hispanic and half Japanese. Well, there you go. <laughs> See? All sorts of culture going on up here. All right. So, uh, but my, my question is, if the listeners want to reach out to either Aaron or Renee, can we give their contact information out? Yes, please do. Um, Aaron, would you like to um, provide some contact information? Yeah. If you'd like to, uh, feel free to email me at A-A-R-O-N-G. G-A-R-Z-A at gmail.com. That's Aaron G. Garza at gmail.com. Great. And Renee, how can folks get a hold of you? Yeah, sure. My email is Renee. And so my it's R-E-N-E-E. -E. So Renee at, and here's the tough part, Robichaudi.com. <laughs> so it's Renee at Robichaudi.com. And Robichaudi is R-O-B-A-S-C-I-O-T-T-I. Oh, and I totally pronounced that wrong. I'm so sorry. Oh, sorry, okay. Rachel. <laughs> it took me a, it took me about a month to get it right too. <laughs> All right. Well, the nice thing is the listeners can rewind this and listen to it again. Yeah. <laughs> right. listen, listen to how to pronounce that again. That is a tough one. Uh, and they yep. can get that. Yeah, they can get the email addresses there. Also, we will include some contact information in the show notes, so it'll be yep. easy for people just to go ahead and click on that and go right to somebody that they would like to speak to. And, and again, I want to thank you for being great guests on the show. And Kim, thank you so much for bringing them on. Thanks again. Thank you very much for being here. And Eric, as always, I appreciate you. Oh, yeah. It's so much fun talking to you. I, I just love it every time. <laughs> and the last thank you, of course, goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Deep Impact Investing Podcast with Kimberly Griego-Kyle. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Kim comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Now we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. 
Yes, we have two wonderful sponsors again. Our first sponsor is Green Century Capital Management. Green Century is proud to be the home of the first family of fossil fuel-free, responsible, and diversified mutual funds in the U.S. By investing in responsible corporations, Green Century enables individuals to align their investments with their values. Green Century also houses an award-winning shareholder advocacy program that directly presses dozens of companies every year on sustainable practices. Green Century is the only mutual fund company in the U.S. wholly owned by environmental and public health nonprofits. And 100% of the profits earned managing the Green Century funds belongs to them. Our second sponsor is Calvert Research and Management. Calvert is a global leader in responsible investing. Calvert sponsors one of the largest and most diversified families of responsibly invested mutual funds, encompassing active and passively managed equity, income, and alternative multi-asset strategies. With roots in responsible investing back to 1982, the firm seeks to generate favorable investment returns for clients by allocating capital consistent with environmental, social, and governance best practices and through structured engagement with portfolio companies. We appreciate everything the sponsors do for us. And again, thank you for listening today. For everyone at Horizons Sustainable Financial Services, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Deep Impact Investing Podcast, the sustainable, responsible impact investing podcast that shows you how to get your voice heard. It's time to start investing like you give a damn. To ask a question that we can answer on an upcoming podcast, email us at info at horizonssfs.com or join the conversation on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash horizons sustainable financial services or give us a call at 505-982-9661 don't forget to click the subscribe button to be notified when new episodes become available the companies we may speak about during our podcast are not recommendations for investment only you and your financial advisor can determine what the right investments are for you and your situation horizon sustainable financial services is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of new mexico and other jurisdictions were registered or exempted. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and or guest and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Horizon Sustainable Financial Services. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.